A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have it to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson. This year, it's the 40th anniversary of Blackadder, the TV show that actually changed my life. Because I played the turnip-brained Baldrick, who, as most of you will know, always had a cunning plan. And to celebrate this special birthday, I've invited a fellow Blackadder alumni and a great friend of mine, a very old friend of mine, actually, onto the podcast. It's the legend that is... Miriam Margulies. Back in the day, before she was a national treasure, Miriam made three standout appearances on the Blackadder series. One, the Spanish Infanta, that was in the first series, Lady Whiteadder in series two, and my favourite, Queen Victoria in Blackadder's Christmas Carol. And I'm interested to find out how much she remembers about the series. And given that we are almost the same age and our careers span back about 60 years I wonder what we both remember and what she remembers and I don't and what I remember and she doesn't there is a third person in the room as there always is our producer Melissa what would you like me to try and winkle out of her well, Miriam is obviously a national treasure now, isn't she? We all know Miriam Margulies. But what I'm so interested in is that Blackadder probably for her, it's a guess, but, you know, changed her life in some way or definitely had an impact on her career. So I'd love to know about that. I'm really interested in that. Taking us back to her, her early days. Do you remember when you first met her? I mean, she's quite a force of nature. I do very clearly, and you're absolutely right. It was a meeting with a force of nature. I wonder if she remembers it. I'm not going to tell you now because I think it's much better if this comes out in the conversation. But yes, her very first meeting was incredibly memorable and it happened in a church hall in Hampstead. I cannot wait to hear this. Well, let's hear from Miriam. I trovato. Bene. Go louder as you can, as you think you do in this session. <laughs> That's about as loud as I Yeah, a little bit of clipping, but it's normal. Okay. Okay. Oh, that's much T- Tony's directing here. Yeah. I can see <laughs> the whole... Better? I can see your magnificent rack. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that's what it was called. Yes. I'm, I'm just um, writing about uh, a tour around my body, actually. This 
a chapter for my new book. For the new book. What a brilliant idea for a chapter. Oh, fantastic. I ought to warn the people who are listening to this that given it's you and I talking, there's going to be quite a lot of swearing and also probably quite a few descriptions of sexual acts. So, oh, where are you, by the way? <laughs> when I'm, I'm in my Tuscan farmhouse. It's usually blazing with sun, but it's a bit overcast today. But this is, in a way, the place of my heart. I love it. And I'm sitting in the dining room, facing the windows, and looking out over to the olives, because I have my own olive oil. But, Miriam, I've known you and you've known me for, well, it's got to be half a century now. But We met in 1960. Six, and where are we now? Yeah, that is that. For, yeah, yeah. Well, it is over half a century, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, and it was in Leicester, and you were extremely funny in a play called Dandy Kaput. I was less funny, uh, but we got on like a house on fire. And it's where I became a lesbian, and it's when Britain won the World Cup. I don't think the two are connected particularly, but. I think they may well be in some strange way in some universe. I had no idea at the time that you had, to use your phrase, become a lesbian. Were you not like a dormant lesbian before that? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think I probably always was. I just didn't know it and not, I hadn't really done anything about it. But How do you not remember that I fell in love with the stage manager. No, I, I've I've read about it and I've heard you say it. I have no memory of it whatsoever. Um, how how did how did it happen? How did you get pulled for the first time? And why did you agree? Well, I I agreed. I, I guess because I wanted to. I mean, it's something that you you want to do. It, it's sex, isn't it? it it's a, it's a compulsion. Well, I arrived in the middle of the season. Everybody had paired up. I was on my own. She was on her own. I used to walk home after rehearsals. I asked her in one night to come and have a cup of cocoa. And um, I sat next to her. And I don't know, that sort of thing happened that happens between people when you feel a, a groin twinge. And I didn't really know particularly what it was. But then she... She kissed me, and after she kissed me, I said, is this sex? Because I didn't know, and <laughs> I've, it I've, was. I've heard you use that phrase before. What do you mean you didn't know it was sex? Well, I just didn't know that you could feel like that uh, with a woman. It, it just, because it was outside my experience. And did it go well that first time? Because for a lot of us, the uh, first attempt at, uh, at physical exploration doesn't necessarily go well at all. Well, men have a job because they have to penetrate. And uh, that wasn't part of the deal with us. That didn't happen. Uh, so it did go well. I mean, I don't remember much about it, actually. I just knew I liked it. And I, I went on liking it. And then she fell in love with another actress who, who came up. I, I have written about it in, in my scurrilous book. Um, but um, it, 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 I haven't mentioned her name because I think it's not fair to 
involve somebody who may have a completely different life now. I don't know. That was just a, a little flash into one minute slice of your life. I'd like to start off really talking about Blackadder because, well, because I know people will want to hear about that. And then let's veer away again. I, I want to remind you of my first memory of you rather than oh, just yes. your first memory of your lesbian friend at around the same time. Um, what did you play in Blackadder first time and why did you accept it given that you loathed Oxbridge blokes? It's true that I didn't have a good time with the Cambridge lot when I did uh, Footlights. I was offered it and I really wanted to do it. I mean, I think it was it was fun. It was late. Uh, it wasn't Lady White Anna. She came next. It was the Spanish Infanta. And I mean, I think the main draw, frankly, was Jim Broadbent. I knew I was going to be working with him and I met him and I think he's wonderful and I thought he was wonderful then and I just wanted to work with him so I read the script I think I read the script I probably just said yes anyway so you were and, you were often it you didn't have to audition or anything no I didn't have to audition no I didn't I wonder if I should have no I didn't have to it was uh, Mandy Fletcher was the director and I liked her very much and, of course, I loved all of you, all of you boys. You weren't a bit like the boys from Footlights. You were, you, you saw me as a person. You, you spoke to me. You were, you were kind and fun. And I could see that Rowan was very, very shy. Um, in fact, he, he stammered at that time. But um, he was a darling, and, and everybody was. And I just felt, oh, I'm part of this. This is lovely. And that's what you want to feel when you're working. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Remind us what the Spanish Infanta was like. <laughs> the Spanish Infanta was a very large, very sexually animated, rather ugly Spanish princess with a moustache. Some of those adjectives I have to agree I have don't think I had a moustache then. I think it had to be painted on. But she was desperate to get married. And she took one look at Rowan and her um, she creamed in her knickers. You know, she really did. She was, she was ready and in pursuit. And part of the comedy, of course, was that Rowan was definitely not... A, a, a willing partner to this union and he was in retreat I, I was never able to see the actual creaming of the knickers but what I could see was the eyes you did the most brilliant princess die uh, every time you looked at him which I found hysterically funny yes I I wasn't modeling it on her I I just I don't know if she was even around at that time but I I just uh, did what I thought was right for the character, the way we always do. And Rowan made it very easy for me. He was very nice to work with. It was just interesting because when he made a mistake, uh, he got so angry with himself. Didn't get angry with anybody else. He wasn't difficult. And and you were just as as gorgeous as you have remained. You were just kind and funny and friendly. 
and that's what you want in comedy. I think one of the the great pieces of writing uh, in that episode, there aren't any words. It's the fact that the next morning you actually haven't had sex with Rowan's character. You've had sex with Baldrick, with me. And we just cut away to my face looking like it's been run over by a steamroller. And your glee at how wonderful uh, the experience was and me completely out of it by the amount of pressure that you've exerted on me in one way or another during the course of the night. A very funny moment. I had completely forgotten, Tony, that that we had had it off. Our characters had had it off. I just, I hadn't even remembered that. But I know that the camera made a lot of fuss of, of my eyes and my tits. I mean, they they were the, they were the stars of, of my performance. Really, there's another rude thing that that I remember. This is this is the first day I ever met you. If you remember, we were rehearsing in a uh, hall in uh, Hampstead, church hall in in Hampstead, and we all read round the table in the morning, and. Then we had lunch and then you were supposed to be on first thing in the afternoon and you weren't there and you weren't there and you weren't there. And then about 20 minutes late, you breezed in and said, oh, I'm sorry I'm so late. I've just sucked off a park keeper. (laughs) You're telling me things I cannot verify. You don't have to. Maybe they're total lies and they just go into the myth of Miriam Margulies. You have told on Graham Norton so many things far ruder than that that it really doesn't matter. I wonder who he was, a park keep. Well, yes, but it was um, because it was Hampstead Heath and I think that in those days there were like people who used to p- patrol it up and down. My goodness. I honestly don't remember it. I suppose it's all right not to remember, but you'd have thought I wouldn't. Because I I wasn't, I mean, I was gay, so I don't quite know what I was doing. Well, no, well you were, but you weren't out by then because that, that happened uh, a few weeks later, didn't it? When we, got, when we actually got up to Leicester. Oh, maybe. So this is probably the last flourish of your not-gayness. So interesting. I'm so glad you remember. <laughs> <laughs> these, these touching little moments <laughs> out of your young life. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I did act as well, you know. I wasn't just <laughs> sucking people off. <laughs> How did you get, get into acting? I think it was at university. Uh, I did a lot at Cambridge, you know, with Footlights and the Marlowe and all the college societies I I knew I wanted I knew I loved acting I don't know if I really knew I wanted to be an actress and then um a radio producer came to Footlights and he gave me his card John Bridges and said if you want an audition for BBC radio let me know when it's when the time comes and I did and I started on radio which is where I will probably finish and I do love it it's still my my joy to act in a radio studio. There was a time, wasn't there, where people got a bit sniffy about radio acting and certainly about being 
what we called on the rep being being part of that repertory of performers who were in um, maybe seven or eight shows uh, a week providing the voices it it was it was thought of as as not as high status as as theater or even television which was a very poor second to to theater but actually it it, it, it was a great training ground wasn't it and there were some wonderful performers uh, in radio at that time. Oh yes, I think it was. I think it was wonderful. So I when are we talking about? When was, when was the height of your time in radio? Well, it, I suppose it was all through the seventies and eighties. Um, I was doing other things as well, but I joined the repertory company in nineteen sixty-five, and I was on it for, I think, eleven months before I joined the Leicester um, rep where we worked. But I've always loved radio and I've always, I've, I've been good on radio. I think, you know, how the camera loves some people well, the microphone loved me. And I knew how to make it work for me. I knew how to, how to curl my voice, how to change it, how to interpret characters vocally. And I've, I've made a lot of money out of it. I mean, it became quite lucrative once I did commercials and audiobooks and things like that. And I'm I'm proud of my radio work. I, I think it I think it stands up. It's good. Listening to you telling me that, one of the things I was most fascinated by was your diction. Now I cannot believe that that was the way you spoke at school. It absolutely was the way I spoke. But In it's fact, so much if more. If you listen, just a minute. If you listen to all my classmates who are still alive, they all talk like this too. It was Oxford High School. It's quite posh, isn't it? Yes, I suppose it is. I wish it weren't, because my my emotional feeling is is to connect with people. That's all I ever wanted to do is to connect and. A voice like mine puts people off. You know, when I first went to Australia and I started to speak, I could see people recoil. They were, they were shocked at the purity of my vowels. But I can't help it. When I want to connect with strangers, I usually go Scottish because it's, um, it's friendlier. But my real voice is the one I'm talking to you in now it's not just the way you form your vowels though you you do use your consonants very precisely your 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 tongue and your lips and your breathing are incredibly disciplined like an athlete really you're like a mouth athlete in many ways well (laughs) (laughs) and i really trained for that you know um well yes i i think uh, my elocution teacher, when I was at school, Miss Plowman, she taught me that uh, vowels carry the emotion and consonants carry the sense. And that is true. And because my longing is to communicate, to really let people understand and be part of me as I speak to them, I've always been very careful that they would hear me and know what I was saying. And one of the problems for me now with television is 
I don't think people care. They just mumble. They don't care if people hear what they say or not. And I do care. And I still care and I always will. It is a search for a different kind of authenticity at its best, that mumbling, isn't it? Like like Marlon Brando and James Dean and uh, and Paul Newman even. They, they, they were of the school of mumbling, weren't they? But you did know what they were saying. I, I think you can mumble. I mean, you don't have to be as fiercely clear as I am. I, I think that's unnecessary. I think I rather overdo it. When I hear myself in comparison with other people, I think, oh, come on, girl, tone it down a bit. You're a bit too clear. But I think it's possible that there's a middle way. And unfortunately, I don't think people at drama school are taught how to be clear. They don't, they don't care. I think that's a pity. Looking back on those early years, certainly when you've written about them, it seems to me that there were two spaces, two emotional spaces that you went into that really made you happy and that you can conjure up effortlessly now. One is being with your mates at school and the other is being with your friends at university. Is that fair? That's true. I was very lucky in the school I went to and grateful to my parents for paying because it was a fee-paying school and it wasn't cheap. But mummy and daddy knew that it was a good school and they had plans for me to go to university always. So I was allowed to stay there. And the other people in my class were fabulous. They still are. I mean, I know them all. We've remained in touch. And I love them. And we write to each other an email and phone. And we have occasional reunions. And it does matter to me that those friends of my youth, that I care about them. And then when I went to Cambridge, the same thing. It was an all-girls college. It still is, Newnham. And I loved it. And I loved the people that I made friends with. So... You know, I'm, I, I, I was, it was like being with loose swimming, you know, that program. Yes, yes. Um, do they have men on it? Occasionally, Sometimes. I've been on it a couple of times, yeah. Have you? Mm. Um, well, they're, they're great fun and, and pals, and I, I feel like that about my Newnham pals. We're still very close. We Zoom every two weeks. And you loved the work, didn't you, at Cambridge? Yes, yes. I, I, I read English literature, which is still the thing that gives me probably the most pleasure in my life, is to read the great works of, of our literature. That's what England's got to offer the world. I mean, God knows as fuck all at the moment, but the literature will last forever. Desert Island books, what would you take with you to your Desert Island, your reading material? Probably very much what you would expect. Uh, all of Dickens. Um, all of, I suppose, Jane Austen. I mean, I haven't got... Are you a anything. George Eliot fan? Oh, yes. Middlemarch. Yes, I mean, all the, the obvious great works of literature. They, they refresh me every time I read them. I'd probably take poetry as well. I mean, Keats and Shelley... Uh, I love the romantics. And John Donne, 
oh God, what a, what a corker he was. Just wonderful. And the Shakespeare sonnets aren't bad, are they? They're, inc- I mean, how lucky are we to be able to read Shakespeare in the original? I'm sorry I can't read Russian and read War and Peace and those great novels, but come on, Shakespeare. Whoa. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You're listening to Tony Robinson's Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson, and my special guest this week, the legend that is Miriam Margulies. I'm going to tell you about another experience that the two of us shared, which I'm sure you won't remember either, which was that years ago I was asked to do Poetry Please or, or one of those programmes down in Bristol on the radio, and I asked you and I asked Kenneth Haig to to be my readers and it was it was a pleasure for me to hear you performing stuff which was sort of outside of the canon of things that are normally performed i do remember that we did that you just don't remember the sex i don't i don't remember (laughs) the sex i but i remember how much i loved doing it i love reading poetry aloud and i'm really good at it the other person who is who i remember was wonderful was a drama teacher called Rose Bruford. I don't know if you ever came across oh, her. Oh, she started her own drama school, didn't she? She had her own drama, which may still exist. But boy, when she read poetry, you've just thrilled to it. And I love poetry. I think people should read it more. There was a time when you could read it on the tube. Do you remember? They put poems on the tube. I, I loved do. that. Sometimes I showed off and read them aloud. <laughs> <laughs> of course you did, Miriam. <laughs> so in the story of your life, you've been uh, on the radio rep, really honing your skills on, on radio. Uh, you went to Leicester, uh, which is where you and I met. What, what happened to you over the next few years after that? After Leicester, I went to Edinburgh in rep there. And then eventually I kind of toddled down to London and was out of work for most of the time, trying to get television jobs. I did occasionally get them. And slowly, slowly, I made my way up the ladder, but very slowly, and I often felt that I was no good, that I was a failure. And it was Mummy who who really supported me and said, come on, stop that. 
You're brilliant. You're good. They'll find out one day. I just didn't know it's going to take so long. <laughs> I don't know anybody else among my friends who calls their parents mummy and daddy. How does it feel when you say those words to you? What does it represent? I think I'm, I'm now conscious that it's a bit anachronistic. But I don't know what else to call them because that's what I always called them. Mummy and daddy. Uh, and it probably does sound a bit weird now. I mean, remember, I'm 80, nearly 82. It's a different world. I inhabit a different world. But what would I call them? I would never call them mum and dad. I mean, that was just out, out of the question. It's what, a class how, thing. Would they have been offended by that, do you think? Oh, yes. I think once I called mummy mum and she said, don't you call me mummy. I'm mummy to you, mummy and daddy. And that's how it always was. And that's how I think of them in my head. I know people have pulled me up on it and said, what's that with you? It's a bit, um, but you know, in previous uh, generations, they would have been called Mama and Papa or Ma and Pa. Daddy called his parents Ma and Pa. But, but he was Scottish and I think they did call them that there. For me, it's always mummy and daddy, and I loved them, and I still love them, and I'm, I'm still a bit of a child because of them, I think. I think they kept me, kept me um, not quite formed. I still feel as if I'm going to grow up. I haven't quite done it yet. In, that's so interesting. In, in what way did they subtly hold you back from adulthood, do you think? Well, they they were very uh, judgmental about my friends. I know um, Anna Trulove used to call her parents a Joan and Sydney because that's they were their names, and Mummy wouldn't wouldn't like didn't like that. She was very clear about what she liked and didn't like. I think they just made it uh, difficult for me to be to function without them. And I'm not sure I ever have functioned without them. And now I have Heather in my life. I've, I need her to put me right. I don't feel I'm a totally independent person, which is a, a criticism. It's a self-criticism. It's, it's a fascinating one. Do you think Heather is aware of that, that need in you? Yes. Yes, she is. Does it piss her off? A bit. Yes, I think it does. And I'm, I'm not surprised. I think I'm a, a somewhat pathetic, needy, unformed creature of great sweetness and, and you know, and charm and all that, but not, not quite all there. <laughs> <laughs> On that bombshell, <laughs> let's move to uh, Lady Whiteadder. Uh, ah, yes. Well, uh, it seems to me that Lady Whiteadder has survived longer than the Spanish Infanta, in that when people meet me in airports and, you know, walking along the street, it's, it's Lady Whiteadder that's grabbed them. And they always want me to say devil's dumplings or, you know, 
one of the lines from from a script which I don't remember now. But grown men remember them, and and wicked child and all wicked that child, kind of yes. thing. Yeah. Um, and I I feel thrilled and very happy, and I do think it was a a good character. But it was it was Richard that wrote it, wasn't it? Richard Curtis, yes. he wrote it. So all credit to him. But I seem to be um, commemorated in people's minds more as Lady Whiteadder than any of my other appearances. The last time I watched you giving that performance, and it is a, I think it's a very, it's a very fine performance. You have a, you've you've talked about this yourself. You're 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 you're, you're quite showy on telly. You have the you have the courage to do that, whereas most of the rest of us kind of really retreat into ourselves and hope that the camera will catch the subtleties of what uh, we're doing. Whereas you you almost invariably go, look, this is what I'm going to do. And you certainly do that as Lady Whiteadder. But it occurred to me that in a way there is part of Lady Whiteadder which is very like a part of you that I know that doesn't come across on the telly very much. That is, it is that you are a person of ruthless conviction and you don't take fools gladly, particularly fools who disagree with your convictions. And in a way, that's what Lady Whiteadder is, isn't she? Yes, she doesn't see any other way, only her way. That's that's the way it's got to be. And I suppose I am a bit like that. Uh, I mean, I'm a socialist and... I don't think Lady Whiteadder was a socialist. But yeah, l- let me pursue that a bit. Yeah, you, you, you are, you, you're a person of great convictions, aren't you? Yes, I think I am. And it's not easy to change my convictions. I do sometimes, but not often. Can you think of an example when you have? I was um, prepared to meet a Christian. Uh, I'm a bit funny about religion because I don't like it very much. And um, particularly extreme Christianity worries me. When I was doing a program in America, I I met a family of extreme Christians, and I was not in favor of them. But at the end, when I, when I had completed our meetings, I really loved them. And I saw that there are other ways of seeing the world besides mine. It it didn't make me into a Christian, which is what they wanted. They they keep writing to me still and saying, "It you know Jesus loves you. Come to him. Be be prepared." And I can't do that. I can't make that leap. But I can see that there is another way. You referred earlier to your unease with an earlier generation of Oxbridge comedian. How did that happen? I think when I went up to Cambridge in 1960, I was very full of myself. You know, when you get into a university, there's great competition. You're very amazed that it's happened and you're a bit thrilled. And so I came up to Cambridge rather rather confident 
and thinking that I, you know, I was probably rather special. And then I, I got into, uh, I, I was asked to audition for various uh, university societies and I got in and that reinforced my confidence. And my mother was always telling me how wonderful I was. And I think it got up their nose a bit, those boys who were in the footlights. They were minor public school boys, and I think that is a, a species that is particularly repellent, to be honest. And um, they treated me uh, as someone who needed to be taken down a peg or two. And maybe I did. Maybe I was rather obnoxious. But I wasn't cruel. I wasn't nasty. I was foolish, perhaps. But I wasn't a beastly person. I was what a silly thing, person. Sorry, what sort of thing did they say or do that upset you? Well, the thing that ultimately they did was that they stopped speaking to me. They blanked me. They sent me to Coventry. They would do a sketch with me, and then when it was over, I ceased to exist. They didn't This smile. is the Monty Python people? Yeah. Uh, well, it was the people in the footlights who, the Cleese, Chapman, um, I can't remember if Bill Oddie was there. I think he was, Tony Hendra. You know, they, they were just horrible to me and made me cry. And finally, as, as I have recounted, um, they didn't ask me to the cast party. There's always a cast party at the end of the review, and I wasn't asked. So I went to the president, who was called Chris Stuart Clark. They they used his name in a for a television character that they wrote, and I said I haven't been asked to the party, and he said, "Oh, it's a it's an oversight, Miriam." I said, "No, it isn't. It's utterly deliberate, but I want an invitation," and I got one. And I went to the party, so sod them. In later years, have you ever called any of them out about it? I wrote to Tim Brooke Taylor uh, when he got the OBE. And I, I wrote, because I'm very generous like that, I wrote and congratulated all of them, even though I wasn't that thrilled. But I did, because it is an, it is an achievement. And he wrote back a very sweet letter. And then I, I replied and I said, look, you know, 40 years ago, or however long it was, you, you hurt me deeply. And I think it was wrong, but I'm, and I want to tell you. And he wrote back and apologized. He said he didn't remember it, but if it happened and he believed me, it was wrong and he was sorry. Let's move on to another period of your life which absolutely fascinates me because I didn't really realise that it had happened. You up sticks and decamped to America. Why did you do that? I went to America because I thought I'd get work there. I wasn't getting that much work in England. And I did a, a rather wonderful film based on Charles Dickens' story, Little Dorrit. And I won an award from the L.A. Critics Circle for Best Supporting Actress. It was a joint award with Geneviève Bouzold. She got it too. The two of us won the award. And I thought, wow, if they've given a completely unknown 
rather plain, fat actress, an award. I might get work. So I, I went there. I just took myself off there, got myself on television, got an agent, got a contract. Seems and quite it, a courageous thing to do. Were you completely on your own when you went? Yes, I was completely on my own. And I think it was amazingly brave. Amazing. I can hardly believe I did it. How did Heather I, feel about you going? I think she she thought, well, why not give it a go? I mean, she she doesn't um, she doesn't curtail any of my activities, and I don't curtail hers. We're both professional women, following our jobs, and it was part of that. So she just said, "Go ahead and do it." When you say you don't curtail her, and she doesn't. Cur- tell you. One of the interesting things I think is that although you talk in this very ribald way about anything to do with... uh, Ribald, uh, I think it is usually. I'm not going to retake that. I will just (laughs) accept your admonition. Um, You're not promiscuous? No. No, I'm not. I was... I was and I have been in my life, I have been unfaithful, but many, many years ago, and I love, I love my partner very, very much. We've been together for 54 years. And I don't want to gamble with my happiness. I did once. And it nearly broke me. And I'm not going to do it again. I mean, of course I'm not. I'm 82, nearly. I mean, you know, one doesn't open one's legs all the time now. But I just, I, I'm not interested in adulthood. Why do you think it blew you away so completely? Did, did Heather threaten to leave you? Yes, she she said, I think we should split up. And I was devastated. I didn't know why I sh- shouldn't have expected that, but that's what happened. And we were, I don't know, about four months apart. And I, I couldn't cope. I just couldn't, couldn't bear it. And I contacted her and said, I have made a terrible mistake and I can't ask you to forgive me, but let us try to start again. And we did. And I'm so, so glad. Did it take you very long to get your... Do you want to stop talking about that now? Uh, no, no, it's just uh, somebody was at the door and I told them oh, to Oh, I thought it was emotions. <laughs> oh, were, that's so funny. If you, were, you just went, I'm so, so glad. <laughs> it was the, someone <laughs> at the door. Oh, let me ask you the question I was going to ask you. Did it take yeah. you very long to get your relationship back on track after that uh, that blow? No, I don't think it... It took that long, but I think it took a very long time for her to trust me again. And I think it was an an incredibly damaging experience. I I have never repeated it. And I've heard you saying on the telly that you actually don't think that playing away is a very good thing for anybody to do. You've, you've said it quite forcefully in front of Hollywood stars who probably do it as a hobby. 
I know. The thing is that sex is a very powerful phenomenon, trigger in our lives. I know that when I was young, I honestly didn't think about anything else, anything else, for years. That isn't true now. I don't think about sex. However, if I'm in a tube, which I'm not now very much because I'm frightened of COVID, but when I was in tubes, I always looked at men's trousers to see where their cocks were. So it's the still a, I don't know, a, a little fragment of sex left in me. So although you became a committed lesbian quite early in life, you were still looking at where men's cocks were. What, what, what's, what do you think the motor of that is? Just curiosity? Yes, I think it's curiosity and also a rather charming sense of wonder. It's so interesting to me that, that you have cocks and balls, something that hangs outside of your body. Extraordinary. So I, I think I'm still a bit, a bit um, amazed and, and rather thrilled at something so different. Yes, it was a very uh, odd piece of design on the part of the creator, wasn't it? The balls Extraordinary. And it's just amazing. But there we are. That's there it is, or there they are, or whatever you call it. How long were you out, out in the States for? I kept on my apartment in Santa Monica for 16 years. I wasn't there all the time because I did get work back in England, but I did have it for 16 years. I've now um, given up my green card. So I have to get a visa if I get work in America. I've had the same conversation with Matt Lucas, who lived primarily in the States for a long time, that if you do keep coming back, even if it's only two or three times a year to England and do something on the telly or do a couple of chat shows or whatever, no one really knows that you have been away. I think it, it wasn't quite like that with me. I think people thought I'd gone to live in Australia when I hadn't, you know, because I have got Australian citizenship, because Heather is Australian, and I wanted to be able to go and come from our house whenever I wanted. I didn't want to have to apply for visas all the time. And I think a lot of people thought that I was in Australia when I wasn't. Well, I think the the uh, the perfect example of that is that before we started this conversation, and your and your picture came up, I assumed that you were in Australia, and then you said, "No, I'm in my house in Italy." In 1973, Heather and a friend of ours called Peter and I bought this old farmhouse in Tuscany, and did it up, and we use it for holidays, and we live here and. I love it. It's absolutely wonderful. It's not smart. It hasn't been made to look like a New York loft, like a lot of people who have places in Tuscany. It's just a very simple, lovely place, and I love it. How long do you spend there? I tried to escape from COVID, which so far I have. So I've been here for a long time. I mean, you know, half a year or more. 
I suppose this is going back to Lady Whiteadder a bit, but I can remember when you and I were on the uh, the Equity Council, the organisation which runs our trade union, um, we were kind of on the same side, the progressive wing, as it were. But there was a particular issue that arose, which was about how actors should be paid for repeat fees and overseas sales. When you were on one side of the argument and I was on the other side of the argument, and I can remember the sheer force of the way that you argued. It was like I couldn't sit upright in the chair when you were arguing. I had to lean back like that because of the power and the scathingness. And I was, and there was part of me that just wanted to go, hi, Miriam, it's Tony. But I knew that that conviction, whether you were right or wrong, I think probably you were 60% right and I was 40% right. But, but the, the, the force of it was was certainly unlike the Miriam Margulies that we see on Graham Norton. Yes, but it is the, there is that Miriam Margulies. I, I care very, very much about, about politics, about the way the country's governed and about the way that people see each other. And I don't like what I see now, and I didn't like what happened on equity. I mean, I, you were the president. You became the president of equity, and and were a very good Vice and hard-working president. And I was thrilled that you were the president. I voted for you. But I don't like what's happening in equity now. And I, I feel it's just like the rest of the country. It's all fizzled out and gone wrong. I really feel a kind of despair about the way things are. So I try to be cheery and outgoing but Be inside. before you collapse into complete despair let's think of something positive which is your performance as queen victoria in black adder's christmas <laughs> yes. which i think uh, it's the fa it's my favorite of the of the three i just i don't, don't know why I, I just thought you created such a wonderful queen victoria it was so intelligent and so charming and you were clearly so enjoying being in proximity of Jim Broadbent once again. It was just lovely, lovely. Well, he was wonderful too. I mean, it's a perfectly delightful to work with him. I never have since, unfortunately. But um, I love Queen Victoria. I played her several times, not just in Blackadder. And it was, it was thrilling to have the chance to do it in Blackadder. And I hope people will remember it, as, as you do. I, I, I get a huge charge of joy hearing you say that you liked what I did. I, I think it was good too. You know, I can be a really good actress. Sometimes, not always, but that was one of the triumphs. Miriam, in the autumn of our lives, we've both gone down the same path of making documentaries. Yes, I've been so lucky, and I love yours, by the way. And I love yours. I, I, I absolutely adore what you've done with the mature part of your life. <laughs> and I've tried, I, I didn't think about copying you. I just, I kind of fell into it. But I have had the chance to travel around the world and talk to people. And it, it's, it's thrilling. I, I, I've got so much out of it and I'm doing more and I'm getting better at it I think. I think one of the in interesting things about watching you is that um, 
you still are able to use quite a few of your actors' skills in front of the camera. The 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 the, the timing, the slapstick, the throwaway. Um, it's not just some person going around the world. It is it's it's a professional who knows what she's doing, who's going around the world, isn't it? Well, I like to think that I can bring some of my dramatic skills or my comedic skills uh, to the to the job to make people feel more relaxed because that's the key is I've got to be listening and opening up other people and I think little jokes and little self-deprecating moments helps so that's something I am bringing with me and also and this is amazing I've become a writer I'm not really a writer I mean I haven't become a writer I've written a book and believe it or not, it sold three quarters of a million copies. I mean, that's successful. And I, I can hardly believe it. And I've been asked to write another one. And I'm in the middle of writing another book, too. Are, it won't... are, you, allowed to tell me, are you allowed to tell me anything about that book? Well, it's called O Miriam, uh, because that's what people have said to me all my life. In different tones of shock, disapproval, resignation. Um, and uh, I didn't think of the title. My uh, publishers thought of it. But um, it's, a, it's, it's about me and the people I've met and things that have happened. So I hope it's going to be entertaining. I'm sure it will be. And I'm just very grateful that I've suddenly been given the chance to do these new things in my life, which I never expected. Looking forward into your life from where you are now, what cunning plan have you got about your future? I want to go around the world talking about myself and doing characters from Dickens so that I take the message of Dickens everywhere and I'm not too tired at the end of it. What would you say the message of Dickens is? Be kind. Thank you, Mary. Big hug, Tony. Bless. Thanks for listening. If you want to join in the conversation, you can find me on Twitter at Tony underscore Robinson and you can follow all our podcast news on Twitter and Instagram at CunningCastPod. And please, please, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. I'm Tony Robinson, this is my cunning cast, produced by Melissa Fitzgerald, and it's a Zinc Media production. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.